Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Chapter 4. Tough Love. October 2nd, 2005. You know what I think your problem Laura put down her glass, but responded with nothing but a stern glance. She had heard this one before. Your problem is, is that you don't let anyone in, even though I know you really, really want to. Tom's words were well-meaning, but thick with alcohol and laced in cliché. I love you, obviously, he added. But you're just too mean to men. You should be more like me in that regard. What, you mean more of a slag? She arched an eyebrow as high as it would go until the pain it caused her forehead outweighed the points she was trying to make. I mean, welcoming, open, willing to be loved. Willing to be loved? Laura repeated, mocking Tom's tone. What does that even mean? You know, this kind of shit is exactly why I'm glad we don't live together anymore, Tommy. I can only take so much life coaching for my own fucking brother. Willing to be loved and less sweary. Tom interjected. Well, yes, anyway... When you've had the luck that I've had with men, you'll learn not to bother being either. Maybe I'll just get a load of cats. Maybe that'll be my thing. I'm almost 36 now anyway. And then, in her best Bill Paxton. Game over, man. Game over. Ye of little faith. <laughs> Should I have faith? There aren't a lot of great men out there, you know. Let me see. I've had the guy who rang me 18 times after the first date... The guy who painstakingly critiqued every item of clothing I had on and then asked if I could pay for everything. Uh, the bloke who literally just come off signing his divorce papers. Oh, and yeah, let's not forget everything with James fucking Logan. He was a delight, for sure. Okay, fair point. How do you do it? How do I do what? Deal with men. Uh, it's a bit different in my shoes, to be honest. Men who go for men are normal. 
and men who go for women are surely insane. Hmm. Well, either way, I think I'm going to call it a day for a while. Laura said with a sigh. It's not my game. Clearly. You don't mean that, Tom interjected. I, I know you don't mean that. If you found the right guy, he'd balance you out something chronic. You saying I'm unbalanced? A bit. No, obviously. I just mean that I think you're more eager to have that special someone than you think you are, and with that in mind, you shouldn't give up. Mister Wright's just round the corner, probably. Laura nodded, more to the table than to Tom, then motioned to the door, signalling that it was time to leave. She'd had way too much wine. Her dizzying thoughts were clouding over with the need for sleep. She and Tom walked with sideways motions to the tube, arm in arm. Laura wondered if there were any straight men like her brother, ones she could love without complication, and who could talk to her without acting as though she were some kind of princess. She craved an equal, someone whom she could talk shit with, and fill her time with, and do nothing with. She wanted it far more than she'd ever let on, but the truth of it was that time felt like it was rushing. It was to her as though her skin was rubbing away, and soon she'd be a skeleton. And though she had always considered herself a proud feminist, there was the constant worry that nobody could love a skeleton. At the foot of the escalators inside the tube station. She and Tom hugged and parted towards separate platforms. Him going south and her north. She bustled onto her train with drunken plods and threw herself into a chair between two other women. The guy sitting across from her was attractive, bearded, with turquoise eyes. She tried to catch his glance, but couldn't be sure if she looked alluring or insane, nor if the smile that returned was for her or either of the girls sitting by her sides. They both wore skirts far too short for the weather, and no tights. She tried to remember the last time she'd worn a skirt that short, bare legs or no, and couldn't. But that was fine, she thought. She would be a cat lady now. No need for short skirts and bare legs if you're a cat lady. No need for anything exciting when you're a stereotype. She pulled the iPod from her bag and scrolled a thumb about the wheel until she found a suitably melodramatic anthem for her feelings. Clicking the wheel again so that the chosen song would play on repeat for the rest of her journey home, her favourite songs sometimes seemed to be a narrative retelling of her adult life, but never more so than after several drinks. The song was still playing, maybe for the sixth or seventh time, when she got off the train at Turnpike Lane. It was still playing when she rounded the corner onto her street, which was almost beautiful with its swaying streetlights. Their beams smeared in diagonal lines through the dirty lenses of her new glasses. She slowed to give the song a chance to finish before reaching her front door. She had always liked songs ending in sync with her arrival. It made her feel like she was in a film, at the tail end of a montage. But the song didn't end. The band was never given the time to bring the thing to a close. Instead, the smashing of drums and the anthemic guitars stopped suddenly. The whip of fresh autumnal air taking its place in an instant. Her headphones had been ripped from her ears, and she was being pulled backwards by something larger than herself. An arm had wrapped around her from behind and pulled her into someone's torso. A hand 
cold and clammy at the same time, had covered her mouth, muffling what would have been a scream had she had the wherewithal to let one out. As it was, she was silent, watching from above herself, a passenger in a car crash. She felt her body being buckled over and scooped up, and air escaped her mouth, and then the side of her face had touched the grit of the pavement, and then hands were all over her, gripping onto her midriff, and her things, and dragging her left and right, up and down. She was being moved somewhere, but the dark of the night and the wine in her, and the shock of the thing, all made it impossible to know in which direction she was travelling. Eventually she did almost scream, and a hand was placed against her mouth again, and she tried to bite it and its owner recoiled slightly, but she couldn't break free. And then something was placed over her head so that she could no longer see anything at all, and a hinge squeaked, and she was pushed inside the boot of a car, and the hinge squeaked again, and then it was dark and quiet save for her panicked breathing. She was still, though, not wriggling or fighting or trying to get out, just still, frozen by fear and disarmed by the strangeness of what had just happened. This is how I die, she thought with strange clarity. I'm going to be raped and then I'm going to die. This is how I go. There was an odd sense of calm about the realisation. She'd obviously always known that she would have to die at some stage and had, on occasion, wondered how it would happen. To be presented with its method was freeing, in a way. She felt distanced from the worry of it. The car's engine rumbled into life. There was the vinyl scratch of tyres turning on loose tarmac, and then it pulled away, taking her with it. This is how Laura Ray dies. How strange. I hope it isn't very painful. And then, from booze and shock, and from the naked tiredness of a full day, and from something akin to dopamine flooding her system in defence, she passed out. James drove slowly, noticing that Laura hadn't made a sound in the back of the car, and trying not to rattle her about any more than he already had. Sweat lashed down from his brow, and when he went to wipe it away, the salt ground against the bone above each eye, stinging him. He wondered why life had dealt him such a poor set of cards. He'd never asked for any of this, never relished it. And though Laura was the one being thrown from side to side in the boot of a car, he felt the victim. At least she was able to experience everything with fresh eyes. She would never have to live through her mistakes twice. As the car pulled up outside James's house, he could acutely feel the weight of everything on him as if the earth beneath him had grown in size, making him smaller, pushing him harder towards the ground. He stood by the boot of the car, leaning on it. He whispered a prayer to anything listening. I know this isn't right, but what I'm doing it for is, he said, because I know what happens. He popped the boot and found Laura curled up and unconscious. It brought back memories of watching her in the mornings, when he'd roll onto his side and hold his breath in order to listen to hers. She'd rise and fall, and rise and fall, and he'd find it endlessly comforting. Now though, in the shadow of the boot, and with orange lamplight only doing the barest of jobs of lighting the street, she looked more like some sort of felled animal, like a captured beast. He lifted her gently and took her inside, making sure no one was around to see, 
From there he carried her upstairs and placed her on one of the dining room chairs, softly calling her name to rouse her as he began to tie her to it with reams of duct tape. He looped her several times, each time trying not to caress her body any more than necessary. Laura? Loz? It's okay, Loz. It's okay. This'll be scary, but it's... it's going to be fine. Her eyes opened then, smoky darkness blurring everything and an awful smell slapping at her nose. She began to panic and sweat and rock on the chair. Help! She began, but James muffled the sound with his hand, which he kept there forcefully for a few moments. Don't, he said. Please, just don't. He could feel her intense breathing against his palm. It was like the pistons of a steam train firing every second, hot and clammy and powerful. He worried that she might have a heart attack or faint again, so he removed his hand and attempted to reason with her. But it was no good. Her head bobbed away and she inhaled sharply, as if to prepare for another scream. As it began to belt out, James was forced to do what he hoped he would not have to. Take off one of his shoes and one of his socks, and stuff the latter, sweaty and coarse, into her mouth. He promptly taped it in place, apologising as he did so, while Laura quietly gagged and coughed against the alien texture, touching all corners of her mouth. Do... do you ever look at the cables running along the sides of the tube tunnels? He asked. Have you ever stared at them flying by as the train screams through the tunnel? Dozens of those big, fat cables running from station to station. You know the ones I mean? Laura was silent. She did not know what James meant, nor did she know why she was there, nor how long it would take for anyone to start looking for her. How long, she wondered, before anyone would really notice. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
They just do their job, those cables. Taking information from one place to the next in a nice straight line. It's so simple. James pulled the other dining chair around so that it faced Laura's, scratching it against the floor as he did so, and sat down opposite her. And then he just looked at her for a while, while she stared down at her lap. The thing is, he continued, nothing in our lives is as simple as that. There's no A to B in real life. There's choices and different paths and sometimes different directions. It's a nightmare, you know? Laura was shaking with fear now, blinking away tears. No, no, I know you don't know, James added. I should think I'm some kind of monster to you. A stranger. He stood and walked over to the kitchenette, opening a cupboard. Inside were a collection of mismatched plates. He pulled the second from bottom from its stack and brought it over to Laura. He held it just above her lap so that she had no choice but to look at it. This plate. At some point you threw this plate at me. You launched it at the wall behind my head and it smashed into smithereens. We rowed for a while and then you left to go to Tom's. Upon hearing her brother's name, Laura lifted her head to look at James, quizzically. How could he know Tom's name? How much did this freak know about her life, and why? Why had he singled her out? I wonder, if I threw it now, if it would break in the same way, James said, more to himself than to her. I wonder if, I, if it would smash in the same pattern. I don't know. I know as much about all this as you. He put the plate down on the table and put a hand on Laura's cheek, his fingers wrapped around the frayed edge of the tape. If I take this off, will you scream? Laura shook her head, eyes closed, crying silently. <sighs> okay. James sighed. I'm sorry if this hurts. He ripped the tape as quick as he could, and it came away with the sock. Laura coughed and spluttered and wheezed until she could feel the inside of her mouth again. When she opened her eyes, James was sitting across from her once more, watching. Why are you doing this to me? She asked. Why me? You've not been listening, have you? James asked. There was a madness in his eyes, but it was a madness which had grabbed hold of him long ago, gripping onto both his shoulders and tightening over time. It showed itself in moments and gestures and looks. There was a mania in his movement. He was shaky and calm all at once. He was a coil of unravelled thread, nearing the end of its spool. You're not just some random woman, Laura. I'm not just some insane stalker. And I'm not going to hurt you. Quite the opposite, in fact. I'm here. I'm here to protect you. Protect me from what? Laura asked incredulously. Protect me from what? You're the one who's fucking kidnapped me. What's that fucking smell? This whole place smells like death. She retched at the thought of it. James was slightly taken aback by her anger, but he wasn't entirely surprised by it. He knew she had a short temper. He knew that she'd turn to it whenever she felt backed into a corner. He'd once found it funny, charming, but now it was a liability. As if to answer the question, he reached into his back pocket and pulled a small book 
covered in brown leather. I'm here to protect you from what has happened, or will happen, or always happens. I don't know which, but the fact that this book arrived when it did, he said, and the fact that my father died when he did, means there's a chance that things will unfold just the same. And I can't take that chance. I can't let you free tomorrow, because tomorrow is the day you die. Laura sat back in the chair, pushing her head back and tilting it slightly like an animal trying to determine the source of a strange call. She could only take James's nonsensical remark to mean that he would kill her and that he must be deeply confused about what the notion of protecting someone actually meant. She thought back to their date, or what little she could remember from it, and wondered if there was something she ought to have done differently. Had she not slapped him, would she still be in this situation? abducted and tied to a chair, waiting to die? Perhaps she should have taken his oddness with a larger pinch of salt and been more open to him from the off. He obviously considered them star-crossed lovers. But was that based on anything? She could barely recall the venue, let alone her actions or thoughts. It was six long years ago, and she could scarcely remember six days ago. He sat flicking through the leather book, frantically back and forth through its last few pages. Could she have ever loved this bizarre man? She asked herself. Could she have been with him in another life? Had things gone differently? She sighed. It didn't matter. He was going to kill her, and that would be that. She thought of Tom, and of her parents and friends, and fresh tears built up over her eyes. Here, said James, stabbing his finger at some part of some handwritten page underlined and circled in pencil. Here it is. It says, The strange figure who appeared in front of me as if from nowhere, and then later, he flicked a couple of pages. He looked like you, James. He looked so much like you. He closed the book and waved it triumphantly, laughing. (laughs) See? I go back. I go back, Loz. And then who knows where? Or when? And then, more to himself than to her. So, I don't think it's all lost. I just need to get you through tomorrow. I don't understand, James. Laura said through fresh tears. None of the things that you've said make any sense. You have to see that. You have to know that. James put the book onto the table and his head in his hands. I know, he said. I know, I'm sorry. I suppose you think this is all about me being in love with you. Obsessed with you, perhaps. And it is, in a way. But not in the way it used to be. Now it's just about whatever happens tomorrow. But I promise you, Lars, if you make it through tomorrow, I'll let you go. Monday, September 18th, 1941. It was in 1933, at the age of 10, that I drove my first car.
my father's. He died before I could tell him this, but I took his Austin from the shed and tore it along the B-roads at such speed that I thought the paint might peel off it. Nothing happened. No crash. No near miss, even. I took the car out, rode it for a couple of hours and returned it safely. It was an uneventful misdemeanor, but it changed me forever. I was instantly in love with the speed of the thing. When this war broke out, I knew I wanted to be part of it, not to fight, for I am not a fighter, but rather for a chance to fly. It was the planes I wanted, the speed. So I lied. I lied about my age to be able to serve. I wanted so badly to get the hell away from home and to be gifted the keys to the sky. And now all that has landed me here, on the desert floor, in the shadow of that which was barely a plane to begin with, and I may die. And I've killed Sean Hollis. I suppose this is a confessional text now. Maybe writing about it will help somewhat. Because as of now, the horror of it has gripped me by the throat. But here it is at its simplest. I have killed him. I have murdered Sean Hollis. And now I must try and assemble my excuse for it. This morning I woke once again to his wails and screams and groans. He'd begun to crawl on his belly round to my side of the wreckage, stopping by what remained of the tail in a fit of exhaustion and pain. Logan, he kept yelling. Logan, end me. It is a harrowing thing to hear once, let alone over and over. I confirmed that I would not, though he battered me away when I tried to drag him back into the shade, choosing instead to lie in a heap, the makeshift tourniquet around his leg unraveling to show the horrors beneath. He caught his breath, and that was when he finally opted to tell me about his wife. Have I ever told you about her? he asked me. I do believe he was unable to recall asking the same question the day before. I tried once again to help him to a sitting position, and again he barked at me like a wild animal until I stepped back away. I was concerned that he would melt or catch fire or simply explode in the morning heat. My wife was a beautiful gift, he said, sobbing. A beautiful gift. I didn't know she was gone, I said taking from his phrasing that she was no longer with us. I'm sorry. She should be alive, Philip, he said. She should be alive, and so should I. What happened? What happened was a child, a parasite. That is what happened. Those were his exact words. I asked him what he meant, foolishly, and he exploded into a fit of tears, rocking on his chest in the sand and wailing lots of things that I could not take in. He kept using the word parasite, and he directed many empty-sounding questions and threats to God, though I think no God has ever listened to this part of the world. And truly, I'd never seen anything so desperate. Y your child? I asked eventually. Stupidly. What happened to your child, Sean? He killed Rachel, he said on loop as though it were a mantra, 
The parasite killed Rachel, took my gift away. Eventually he calmed down enough to take the bottle of rum from my hand, the only tool I had to try and make things quieten. He propped himself up on his elbows, wincing, and drank deeply from the bottle until it was emptied. Then he turned to face me and said, That is why I'm here. You're here because our plane crashed, I told him, but I was promptly corrected. No, the plane is why I'm on this patch of sand, but the child, the parasite, is why I'm in this fucking war. I'm here to die, Phil. I'm here so I can rejoin Rachel. All this pain, though, this wasn't supposed to be part of it. We're going to make it away from here yet, I assured him. It was a trite sentiment, and he took a great resentment to it. I don't fucking want to, he spat. I only choose for death to hurry. For God's sake, Phil, make it hurry, man. But your child... It's not a child, I told you. Philip, he blurted, fresh tears welling. Philip, please end me. I can't do it myself. The Lord won't... He won't allow it. I'm in pain, Philip. So much of it. Please. There followed a long debate, the exact wording of which I cannot remember. He put forth a case that I, as an agnostic, could kill him without remorse. That he was in agony, and that he'd not be reunited with his late wife if he were to do the deed himself. It was not a debate I seemed to be winning, but even so he grew angered by my continued resistance. He is dead now, though. I want it made clear that Sean Hollis is dead by my hand. There are no details other than that which seem important. But then, in the telling of it, which I will keep short, it will sound as though I'm trying to absolve myself. Maybe I am. Maybe. But whatever the case... The details are that at some point Sean Hollis unholstered his sidearm and pointed it at me, hell and fury spitting from him with threats which seemed far from empty. I'll kill you if you don't kill me, he said. Over and over he said that phrase, louder and louder and madder and madder until I seemed certain that he would. That was why I, instead of thinking to run out of range or behind cover, unholstered my own pistol and took aim at him. And that was how we spent a long time, guns trained at one another, shouting in turn to act or to calm down. I once, years ago, had to snap the neck of a chicken. I was a few years younger, and there was this chicken in the countryside who'd not entirely died. Blood was coming from her from somewhere, and she was squawking and crying, and her eyes were darting about in every direction. I couldn't stand it. So I took it by the neck and shook it like a wet towel until its neck made an audible snap. Sean Hollis looked more afraid and angry and desperate and insane than that chicken had. His eyes seemed to go entirely white with a mania that sold me years of pain, years of sadness. And so that was why, when he cocked his pistol toward his own mouth and said in an alien tone, Goodbye, Philip. I shot him twice in the forehead. In that moment, it was to save him from his God's wrath. In that moment, I had to. So now Sean Hollis is dead, 
and it is because I have killed him. The words have taken a while to come, but there they are. Now it is evening, and I cannot stop crying. I cannot stop wondering how this has had to happen in such a short space of time. Or if it was always coming, right from the start of things. And moreover, I cannot stop two sounds repeating in my mind. One of a chicken's neck snapping in two, and one of Sean Hollis screaming my name. I once took my father's car out for a ride, returned it safely, and nothing ever came of it. Until now. As she slammed the door, a wave of dust broke free from a map on the wall and floated like a sheet until it was out of the blinking red light's path. A scrap of paper with a picture of a solar eclipse broke loose too, pulling the pin clear with it and sending both spiralling towards the desk below. She was furious. She felt like slamming the door again just for effect, just to let some of the rage in her escape through the vibrations. On the table by the futon there was a half-empty bottle of port. She took it to her lips and drank deep, letting the sugary renders of it slosh around her cheeks. Then she sighed and pulled the dictaphone from her jacket. October 2nd, 2005. Martin Wallace is a fucking moron. A pause. She stopped on the tape, rewound it to the beginning, took another swig of port and opted to start again. October 2nd, 2005. I took my research to Martin Wallace and he showed me the door. I showed him irrefutable evidence and he still showed me the bloody door. He said I was barking up trees. He said, and I quote, there was a reason why I was fired from the force and this kind of behavior was it. He's a moron. He's a fucking moron. There's one happening tomorrow and he won't fucking listen to me, which means it's already too late. He doesn't understand what I've found, the significance of it. He doesn't understand how Father and Logan and that fucking... She trailed off, realising, perhaps for the first time, that she didn't know what exactly she had found either. It was certainly something, that was for sure. But she couldn't be certain what that something surely was. There was a link. That was it. A strange, ungodly link between families and times that made her head spin. She lay down on the bed and thought of George, and how he would have understood had he still been there to help. And then the world swirled in around her, turning everything dark. The booze and the rage and the sadness and the confusion in her battled against themselves, crashing about the walls of her mind and busying her to such a point that she did not notice the red light flashing innocently and rhythmically to itself in the corner of the room. Indeed, Maggie Hollis would not notice the light until the following morning, 
at the start of a day which would define the rest of her life. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 